Welcome to the Concierge CPA. I'm Jackie Meyer, founder of the Concierge Accountant Program and Tax Done IQ software. This is a podcast for accounting firm owners and influencers who are pursuing world-class service. We discuss their path to excellence, their daily habits, and what influences them and their work. We believe that every person has a unique message that can positively impact the world. Stick around till the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. Let's go, y'all. Welcome to the Concierge CPA Podcast. This session is sponsored by... Lo and behold, Tax Plan IQ, my tax advisory software. I have Seth David with me today. It has been a long time coming. I wanted to connect with him, hear about all the amazing things that he has going on. So Seth, welcome and tell everybody a bit about you. Thank you. A bit about me. I went to Pace University to get my accounting degree in New York and worked as an auditor for a bit. And then long story short, and it's a pretty well-known story, I had a drug addiction and went to California to go to rehab, picked up a job after rehab at a publicly traded company. Eventually, I did a couple of temp jobs first, got to the publicly traded company, then went back to a CPA firm for a bit. And then I went out on my own with what was then just a DBA for nerd enterprises. That's like the very short version of the story. Yeah, that is a very short version. Okay, well, wait a minute. So let's unpack this a little bit. So I do come from a family of mental illness. I do have Seth David with me today. It has been a long time coming. Uh, I wanted to connect with him, hear about all the amazing things that he has going on. So Seth, welcome and tell everybody a bit about you. Thank you. A bit about me. I went to Pace University to get my accounting degree in New York and worked as an auditor for a bit. And long story short, I had a drug addiction and went to California to go to rehab. Picked up a job after rehab at a publicly traded company eventually. I did a couple of temp jobs first, got to the publicly traded company, then went back to a CPA firm for a bit. And then I went out on my own with what was then just a DBA for nerd enterprises. That's like the very short version of the story. Yeah, that is a very short version. Hey, wait a minute. So let's unpack this a little bit. So I do come from a family of mental illness. I do have some addiction on my side of the family as well. How quickly or slowly did you get through this addiction issue? And I know it's never over, right? It's an ongoing thing daily. So what do you do to make sure that you're healthy? So, you know, at the time, it seemed very slow when I was going through it. But looking back in the grand scheme of things, and with that many more years behind me now, it doesn't seem like it was that long. And it's funny, I talk with a lot of my friends in recovery and we all agree, I'm 24 years clean now. It's amazing. Some days it seems like it was yesterday that I was in rehab wondering if my life was ever going to amount to anything. And some days it seems like it was a whole different lifetime. What happened for me was I was like a lot of kids growing up, experimented, drank, smoked a little weed, and then it was more than a little. And I like the weed better than the alcohol. And for a long time, I functioned well because I didn't get into the hard stuff for a while. When I originally went to school, I went for computer science, and then I left. And then I ended up coming back to school to get the accounting degree. So I kind of have educational training in both computer science and accounting. By the time I came back to school, 
I was hell bent on succeeding, getting good grades. I was there for the right reasons. Prior to that, I was in school only because that's what you were supposed to do. And I really didn't have that much interest in it. So this time around, I took a philosophy that I learned during my brief stint working on Wall Street. It was work hard, play hard. During the day when the market opens, you're focused, you're on the phone, you're closing. Four o'clock when the bell rings, we go smoke a joint on the roof of the office building and then go back downstairs and get on the phone and cold call, right? And I was in New York, so we played the time clock. We had leads from Dun & Bradstreet, so we knew geographically where people were. So as our day got later, we would start calling across the country. So at the end of our day in the evening, we were calling people in California because it was earlier there. So we just played the timeline, and so we could work till 9, 10 o'clock at night doing this, and we didn't care because we were high. Wow. I'll be in New York next month again for our AMCPA roundtable. I was there in the spring for something similar. And I'll tell you, being in New York is like living in a different world to begin with, let alone having a job like that. That's insane. Yeah. And then I was introduced to cocaine before that, but it definitely escalated on Wall Street as is typical. The rumors are all true. In fact, the funny story, the firm Stratton Oakmont that the Wolf of Wall Street was based on for a period of time, I worked at another firm down the street from them. And I knew a lot of those guys who actually worked for them because it was at those times. It was like 1990, 91. I graduated from high school in 89. It was pretty wild to watch that movie. And it just brought back memories of when I was right there. I wasn't, unfortunately, quite as successful as Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, so I am curious. Do you think that people have to hit rock bottom to get better from addiction? Yeah, it's a great question. And the funny thing about it is, not so funny really, is in our literature, in AA literature, there are two main books that we use. Of course, the main book, which is called Alcoholics Anonymous, it's often referred to as the big book. That was written in the 1930s. They recount the first 100 men and women who figure out what it took to get and then stay sober. 20 years later, in the 50s, they wrote 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. Bill Wilson wrote it, right? So AA was started by essentially Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob which is interesting. There were two white collar guys who started the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you read the forwards to each of the editions of the big book that have been published over the years, they explain that they've changed. They didn't change the main part of it, which is the first 164 pages, but the stories that come after it that are designed to help illustrate and help people relate to what some of these early people's experiences were. They changed those dramatically for the specific reason that they wanted to include a more diverse group of people. Because let's face it, a lot of the people who come and need to get sober are not white collar people. They're people who are poor, broke. They've spent all their money. They've lost everything. They're living on the streets. It was almost prophetic in the way that they were able to foresee how they were going to need to evolve. But going back to your question, the second book, the 12 and 12, As a specific part of it says, the original book, the big book, was written for a quote-unquote low-bottom drinkers. But when it comes down to it, and now with 20 more years of experience by then, what they learned was that you don't have to hit that rock bottom. In other words, the way they explain it, you can raise the bottom up, and essentially you decide when you've had enough, when enough is enough. Amen. There you go. Now, easier said than done, granted. But the point is, you don't have to lose everything in order to be able to get this. I love the expression that you hear a lot around the program where they say it's not a program for people who need it. It's a program for people who desperately want it. And that's the distinction. There's a lot that I've done in my business that I've literally taken pages out of that material and infused it into what I do and how I do it in my business. Because I think you could say the same thing about entrepreneurship and running a business, right? A lot of people need it. A lot of people need to make a living, but only people who desperately want it 
are really going to succeed at building their own business. Yeah, I was just on a different podcast interview this morning and we were talking about as accountants, we're very hard-headed. It's hard to change. And as a coach to accountants, sometimes they have to hit rock bottom before they change, right? In their practice, because it's a workaholism thing or, or some other serious health condition. And then you've got people that do just overcome or they're so new that they're still moldable in their firms and they can skip all the crap. And so that's where I see you like raising the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so applicable to everything that we do. We hope and pray that people don't have to hit that rock bottom, whether it's a work issue or addiction, but everyone's different, I guess. Yeah. But I think it's a powerful message there. Not to mention that even if you're not having a serious problem with drugs and alcohol, we all have something we reach for as a response to stress, as a response to anything that feels overwhelming. It might be food. It might be sex. It might be drinking and drugs, but just not to the point where it appears to be a problem. So I think that's some of the other lessons that can be learned insofar as the fact that this program, the 12-step program, definitely has its benefits for everyone. And I know I've talked to a lot of people over the years, and I've considered it myself. I'm sure there are books out there, I haven't really looked, that people have written about how anybody could use that process to help themselves, even if you're not an alcoholic or drug addict, per se. Actually, gosh, that would be a great bestseller. Maybe you should work on that next, Seth. Keep it between us. You didn't hear anything here. It's all good. But yeah. Okay. Good deal. Yeah. So I guess last question around that. Did you hit rock bottom or did you raise the bar? What made you change? I can describe to you the exact pivotal moment. By the end, I was actually working as an auditor for a federal program that did audits of Medicare and Medicaid cost reports. Not the most exciting work, but it was what I got out of college. And it, it was interesting. I got to travel. And I remember going taking a trip to Puerto Rico once. And I had a hell of a time. Got a bunch of cocaine there. Stayed up in my hotel room for two days. Called in sick while I'm away on an audit. This is when I was really getting close to the bottom. Because that's just not something you do. The government's spending money for you to be there to perform an audit. And there I am saying, I can't make it. I have stomach problems. I can't. Anyway, so shortly after that, I'm in my office one day. And by this time, my parents were aware. I had been to the rehab number one and it didn't take. It was like a 28 day rehab. I was out in 21 because I was doing so well. And within two weeks, I was at it again. So like seven months later, I was supposed to go see my parents. I didn't make it. And mind you, between then, my father and I had sat down. He had written up this letter for me to sign, basically agreeing with him that if I relapsed, I would go to this rehab in California that he had been doing the research. He learned when I was in rehab number one. It was not likely I was going to stay clean given the severity of my case and so on. So we had this thing signed and I had to admit to him that I had relapsed again. And so we're on the phone and he's reminding me of this agreement. And I said, I'm not going to California. I'm not leaving. I signed that agreement under duress, I said to him. And mind you, by this time, my father had some training because he was going to a program called Naranon, which is a sister program to Narcotics Anonymous for the family members. Very similar to Al-Anon for Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I've done Al-Anon. It is a strange thing to get your mind around. <laughs> yeah, but they taught him how to give me tough love, right? I will credit my experience to that as what helped raise the bottom up. Because in that moment, he said to me, fine, I can't make you go, even though we had something signed. But we're going to have to have a serious talk about your finances. Because up till then, he had been bailing me out right and left. Anytime I had a car repair, I didn't have any money. I was spending it all on drugs. So he would 
come and get the car, give me a loan or lend me his other car while he got that one repaired. He just took care of things for me. And so he didn't know it until then, but he had been enabling me. Classic enablement. So at this point, when he said that, I knew what that meant and I knew he meant it. He was done. So I hung up the phone and about five minutes later, I called him back and I said, okay, let's do this. But if we're going to do it, we need to do it quickly before I lose my nerve because I really didn't want to leave New York and uproot myself and go to California and be locked up in some place for six months. But that's what it amounted to. It was that realization that I was going to hit rock bottom very soon now that he was pulling out the rug from underneath me, so to speak. Yeah, I think this enablement thing with parents and their children is got to be one of the hardest issues. Being a mother now, I can't imagine the love that you have for someone having to make a choice like that and then just hating you for it. But hopefully for a short-term period and how much it impacts their entire future in life by enabling anymore. It got interesting because the reason they have programs like Al-Anon and Naranon is because what a lot of times the family members don't realize is that the experience of being around the addict member of their family, it gets them sick in many ways. And in many ways, my father especially became codependent with me. It's going to sound weird, but in a way, he needed me to keep screwing up so that he could bail me out because it helped him feel like he was taking care of me. That was how he took care of me. A few months into rehab, he and I were on the phone and we'd argued about something. I don't remember what, but he then called one of the administrators of the rehab and asked him if my UAs were coming up okay, which to me was a severe infringement of a boundary that was over the line. And I had a therapist there who I worked with on this. So I went and I updated the paperwork to change the permissions. So at that point forward, he was only allowed to ask if I was there and generally if I was okay. He wasn't allowed to ask for any specific information. And that he had a really hard time with. He practically begged me to change it back. And I said, no. And this was me learning to break free from those chains and really stand up on my own, which was important. And the other thing that I learned from that, and it was explained to me by my therapist and sponsor and a lot of people, this is very common when the addict starts getting better and they start becoming more independent, the family kind of freaks out because they're not used to that. They're more used to you screwing up and them having to bail you out and you being the screw up that has to now make up for whatever you did. So it's actually yeah. uncomfortable for the family when the addict or alcoholic starts getting better. It's a whole new experience. Everybody has to get reacquainted. Right. Yeah. Change is hard. Even good change, right? Yeah. Wow. That's a really powerful story. I'm glad that you're here today to be able to look back on it like that and to be able to guide others um, with that path. So let's switch gears a little bit. You've conquered all these things. You know, decide accounting is for you. And when did you become an entrepreneur? So my father decided accounting was for me. When I went back to school, there's a lot of people who knew me as a kid. Accounting was like the last thing you would have expected me to do. Looking back myself, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was all over the place, right? But looking back, it makes sense what a lot of my friends had recounted to me that they would have expected me to be in something, quote unquote, more creative. But as you probably well know, I've evolved into something much more creative at this point. So I gravitated to that. How did I get there? So coming back from my experience on Wall Street, going back to school, it was really like, okay, finance or accounting? Or did I want to go back to computer science? By then, I didn't want to go back to computer science. I really wanted to just get either a finance or accounting degree to fall back on. And the plan was to go right back to Wall Street. 
I wanted to work as a stockbroker. I just wanted to make money. At that point in my life, I was like, I want to make money. So my father pushed me in the direction of accounting based on two, two main things. But the, probably the most significant one was that if you go the route of finance, you really need an MBA to be able to get, you can still do well. If it was a fallback thing, he said, get the accounting degree. It'll be easy enough for you. And then you can go back to Wall Street. And by the time I was done with getting the accounting degree, I was like, I've invested time and my father's money in this and I should give it a shot, right? Plus over that period of time, obviously I had a lot of time to think. And I remember the thought that occurred to me was that stockbrokers, people who work on Wall Street, they're making money off of other people's ideas. And if anything, I would want to come around to making money off of my own thing. I would want to create something of my own. So in many ways, it kicks back to the creative part of me. And I'm sure that's what drove me to want to be an entrepreneur. Coming out of rehab, coming to California, my first job was a temp job working for a big publicly traded company. It was great for the first six months. Then after that, it slowly got worse and worse. Just working for the guy that I worked for, he was a bit of a tyrant. And the funny thing is he and I, for a while, got to be good friends. We would meet outside of work and have coffee and things. In fact, in part, it was because of him that I met my wife. But I just couldn't stand him. He was an asshole. In the end, he was just an asshole. And so little by little, I grew to the point where I just couldn't stand it anymore. And I was almost going to get a job, believe it or not, as an assistant controller at Sizzler Corporation. Some temp agent reached out to me, had the opportunity. And then I turned it down because the company I was working for made me a counteroffer. And so I stayed. And even the recruiter at the time said, most people don't last six months after a counteroffer. And she wasn't wrong. Six months later, I moved on to a CPA firm. And I worked at the CPA firm. It was a similar experience. First six months were great. In fact, one of the highlights in the beginning was the fact that nobody there really knew Excel very well. And I was an expert at it. Excel was one of my superpowers. I've moved on more to Google Sheets these days than Excel, but still, you can't ignore Excel. I was in the managing partner's office regularly helping him with spreadsheets. It was a CPA firm that specialized in bankruptcy. So we had to reconstruct a lot of accounting records for these companies. And so there was a lot of Excel work that I was relied upon for. I remember going into literally like storage units, pulling out paper records. We then had to hire interns to key those records into the spreadsheets to compile the financial data. So it was pretty interesting stuff. So they relied heavily on me for the Excel. I remember when the guy interviewed me, he's, do you know how to do tax returns? I said, I've done my own. That's about the extent of it. And I wouldn't even dare do my own anymore at this point. I don't do taxes. I'm good at financial accounting. Taxes make me want to stick nine inch nails through my eyelids. So that's why I defer to people like you for the tax part, even today. So he was like, no problem. We'll train you. Their version of training was, oh, I don't know if you might have noticed, but we use this program. You've probably seen it on people's screens. It's called Lacert. And I said, yeah, I've seen it. And he's, yeah, it's already installed on your computer. Here's an S-Corp file. Go prepare the return and ask questions if you need to. Meanwhile, everybody's up to their eyeballs. Nobody has time to ask questions. I felt awful asking anybody there to take time away from trying to keep up with their own workload to answer my questions. It led to a lot of frustration. And to the point where then he would berate me for not knowing how to do something I was never taught to do. And I would go home crying from work, literally just crying because I was so miserable. And at this point, I'm just a few years sober and I'm like, what the hell? I might as well be getting loaded. I was probably certainly headed back in that direction. If this is what my life was like, I am not interested, right? Yeah, this sucks. Yeah, it was much better when I was high because then you could berate me all day and I wouldn't care, right? Almost 25 years later, I still talk to the same therapist every week. Oh, that's amazing. 
Yeah. There's nobody on this planet that knows me better than he does, except maybe my wife. Right. He encouraged me. He said, when you go home from work, work on something that you really enjoy. Think about the specific aspects of what you do in your day to day that you really like and work on those things at home. I said, if I'm going to build even a side hustle of my own, I need to learn how to design websites right now. Remember, this is many years ago already. So it wasn't like now where you just go into WordPress and build a website. I bought a book called HTML for Dummies. And there was a product that's no longer in existence that Microsoft had made called Front Page, which was web design software. So I bought Front Page for Dummies. Learned a bit of both. The HTML for Dummies was especially helpful because in those days, you could post ads on Craigslist and get clients all week long. And that's what I did. And using HTML, they allowed you to do it. Most people didn't because most people wouldn't take the time to figure out or learn how. But the reality is with a little bit of HTML knowledge, I could code a really nicely formatted ad for bookkeeping services, right? And at first, it wasn't even bookkeeping that I did. It was actually strictly Excel. I offered services in Excel. I could design whatever you need done to speed it up a little bit. That's how I started evolving into building my own thing and running my business. And I did it real slow. I didn't have resources to lean on and say, give me a bunch of money so I can build a firm and go hire people. I had to do it 100% myself. So I did it slowly. I started getting little side jobs, doing things in Excel for people. My first client, quick, interesting story, the guy was running to be mayor of Beverly Hills. And they saw my ad on Craigslist. His son actually saw my ad, called me up. I go over to his house and it was a really interesting project. They, of course, couldn't see who people voted for, but they could see who voted. So every day they would download the updated list of who had voted. And I wrote formulas that compared that to a list of his known supporters to see who of his supporters had not yet voted. And then next day, his sales team would call those people and say, please remember to get out and vote. It was a very smart strategy. And he did become mayor. I'd like to say it was because of my work that he became mayor of Beverly Hill. Your data analysis and comparison work. That is so cool. I love it. And now look where we've come with big data and AI and, oh, man, crazy. Okay, so you mentioned earlier you didn't really choose accounting, but you did find your thing with the technology side. You've become kind of a prominent figure when it comes to education in the industry. So how did that come about? By accident, really. I, I started doing videos mostly for selfish reasons, really. I was starting to work with a lot of clients locally here in Los Angeles. In some cases, I was hired to do the bookkeeping. In other cases, I was hired to help their bookkeeper. I was moving more and more into a role of an outsourced controller type position versus doing the actual bookkeeping. And in those roles especially, I would find I, get, I got the same questions all the time. The bookkeepers would say, how do I handle an NSF check? I remember that was like one of the first questions that I did a video on because it seemed to be the most frequent. And so I remember my very first blog that I created, and I wrote an article and recorded a quick video demonstrating how to handle an NSF check in QuickBooks. This was before QuickBooks Online even. And I get a comment on the blog almost immediately from a guy who says, I've had five interns in here who supposedly knew QuickBooks and they didn't know how to do this. I watched your video and learned in five minutes. And that was like, all right, writing's on the wall. Not to mention, I come from a long line of teachers. My mother was a teacher and her mother was a teacher. So I feel like somehow that infiltrated into me, even if I hadn't realized it yet for a long time. So I feel like if anything, that may be why it comes naturally to me to know how to explain things. Because I grew up with my mother and my grandmother constantly explaining things to me like a teacher would. And 
So I feel like that's probably where I got it from. I don't know that it was in my DNA. I think it was bred into me, right? But that was the first experience that told me, all right, I'm onto something here. And then long story short, I had a lot more experiences that consistently led up to doing more of that. Eventually, I hired an internet marketing consultant. I showed him what I was doing, and I was just recording these videos using an Adobe program, Adobe Connect. Camtasia was there, but it was new, and I hadn't played with it yet. This was stuff that I used to do webinars. So I said, I'll just do it like I'm doing a webinar, just without an audience, and I'll just share my screen and record the video. No editing, just off the cuff, get it done, throw it up, and then I had to get on and go see clients during the day. So I'd get up at four o'clock in the morning to make a video three days a week just to get it done early before I, I took off because I just enjoyed doing it. And the purpose initially, like I said, was not with any marketing ideas in mind. It was more, I just wanted to be able to answer their questions. So when next time somebody says, hey, how do I do an NSF check? I just shoot them a link to the video and say, here, watch this video. It answers your question. It was out of, I didn't want to have to keep rewriting the same emails, right? You're doing what any educator or coach would say, which is making repeatable videos so that you're not wasting your time stating the same thing over and over again, right? You yeah. just discovered that a lot earlier than probably a lot of other people. Yeah. And the internet marketing consultant told me immediately, you got to put these videos up on YouTube. And I'm like, and this was 2008. I'm like, I thought YouTube was just to put up videos of people like setting Elmo dolls on fire. I remember at the time, there seemed to be a lot of those. And people thought it was funny hearing Elmo say his things while he was on fire. Now I think it's awful. Now I'm like, poor Elmo. What did he do? So with YouTube, things just naturally grew there. Yeah. It's funny. The guy told me to follow Gary Vaynerchuk who at the time was already very popular, not like the superstar he is today. And I started following him and I watched some of his videos and I'm like, okay, I totally get this guy because he's like that classic New York gruff in your face kind of guy. And I grew mm -hmm. up with a lot of people like that. So I got him, but I started searching around for other people and I ended up landing on this guy, Chris Perillo. I don't know if you know who he is. You might remember him. He got famous years ago because he had a show called Call for Help. And it was like a cable access television network that he was on, but it got very popular where people would call him and ask for IT help. My printer's not working. What do I do? That kind of stuff. It was like a talk show where people would call in and he would answer the questions. And then he obviously took it all online. And in those days, he was actually a tech correspondent for CNN. So he was very famous at the time. So I started watching his videos and unlike Gary's, his videos were funny. And I love that. Nothing makes me happier than being able to laugh along the way while I'm learning something. And that was what I tried to infuse. I feel like I'm not as funny as I used to be. I feel like early on, I was more tongue in cheek with what I did. Now I feel like I'm more like, all right, come on, let's just get this done. Yeah, it can get a little bit tough once you've done it for so long. But hopefully, I would think you're still shining in that area. And I love that you try to infuse humor because I love humor. Every day as I get older, I'm like, if fun is not involved here, I do not want to do it. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah. And let's face it, accounting is not easy to make fun. That was what I did in the beginning is I said, let me make fun of this before anybody else can. And so I would start off a topic like, all right, we're going to talk about how to record an NSF check. And I know how exciting this is. So brace yourself. Even a little comment like that, just to lighten things up a little bit. And I do still get the comments from people on YouTube saying that they enjoy my videos because they learn something and they usually get a chuckle somewhere along the way. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Yeah, I hate being on video, but I'm just dabbling with doing some long form content and whatnot versus it being sporadic. And I just got this nice camera that took me freaking forever to set up. Oh my gosh, it's hard. But any tips for those inspired to start doing videos? 
Yeah. I learned early on that you just have to think of the camera as a person sitting across from you in the room that you're having a conversation with, right? You want to make eye contact with the camera like I'm doing right now. So when somebody's watching, it looks like you're looking them in the eye, right? Don't look away. If I talk to you like this, it feels like I'm not really paying attention to you, right? So that becomes super important. Looking in the camera is making eye contact. But I learned to forget that it's a camera and think of it as just like just like you and I are right now. Just imagine we're sitting in a room. I do the same thing now when I write my weekly emails, right? I literally imagine that I'm sitting in a coffee shop somewhere with a friend who's interested in learning this stuff, and I'm explaining it to them. And that's what I do when I fire up the camera. And in many ways, that makes it much more exciting. It makes it more intimate because when I'm doing things with that mindset, it really does come across in a way that I know resonates with the people who watch because it gives them the feeling like I am talking to them because I'm doing it in that frame of mind. And the same thing comes out when I write my emails. Imagine this, a, a weekly marketing email that people tell me they look forward to reading every week because it's not really marketing. It's more from the heart stuff. And that's what I did with this. When that guy first encouraged me to start making videos and putting them on YouTube, I said, all right, let me look around and see what everybody else is doing. There was nothing out there except for some college professors who were doing videos clearly for their students. And it was like taking an already potentially dry topic and making it worse. It was just so boring and monotone. And I was like, okay, there's my opportunity. I can do much better. I'm doing these at four in the morning. So I've already had a gang of coffee. So I'm, I'm fired up. I'm pumped up. I have to make it exciting. And my theory was that it actually can be exciting. Not necessarily that debits and credits are exciting, but it's more about what you can do with the information once you have it, once you know how to compile a good, clean set of books. And what that lets you do and how that helps you make really valuable decisions, that's the part that to me gets exciting. And so that's how I got excited about it, pumped up. And I learned from my experience on Wall Street that the more enthusiastic I am when I'm delivering something like I'm being right now, the more enthusiastic the person listening or watching or reading on the other end is going to be when they receive it. Exactly. People love absorbing that passion. So that's super cool. Okay. So I want to make sure that we talk about a few specific things before we wrap up. One is what's upcoming for you? What's the next big thing? And I know we talked a little bit about this Notion app. Tell everybody what's going on there. All right. In the more recent years, I've become obsessed with this idea of productivity and what makes people more productive. And really in the big picture, why does it seem like so many accountants and bookkeepers are completely overwhelmed and stressed out and never seem to be able to feel like they're really on top of things, right? I'm assuming you experienced that. I know you work with a lot of accountants, right? So why and how do we fix this? And more recently, it's come out on the big four side of things that the people are like over it. That's why nobody's entering the accounting profession anymore, because they're over the idea that you go to work for a big four and you're expected to work 80 hours a week and wear that like some kind of a badge of honor. And it's, no, actually, I'd like to have a life and I'd like to make good money, but then be able to enjoy it somehow, right? And not be burnt out and stressed out all the time. I think a lot of seeing that go on for so many years and experiencing it myself, of course, is what really fed this drive for like this quest for the holy grail of productivity. How do we fix this? And it's funny, years ago, I had read the book, Getting Things Done. And it was like what a lot of us do with books. I read it. I'm like, that's cool. It's interesting stuff. And I've maybe applied like 20% of it, maybe. And I'm sure it just faded over time. And if you had asked me a couple of years ago about anything specific that was in that book, I couldn't have recounted any of it, right? What I can say to you now, because what I've done recently is I've gone back and I'm really studying the book. Like I'm going through it slowly. I've been in it for months 
going through a chapter, making notes in Notion. I'll explain about Notion in a minute. But that's one thing I do with Notion from the get-go is when I'm studying a book, I have a section in Notion called Books, and it's a database that I've built. There's a page for each book. Open up the page for that book, and there's another database with each of the chapters and sections and so on. So as I'm reading a chapter in the book, I'm making notes. I'm looking at this and going, how can I apply this and use this in my business every day? knew from reading the book originally that it, he outlines a very clear process for how to manage everything you have to do with the specific goal in mind of not just reducing, but eliminating stress. He talks about a mind like water. And I love this because this ties back into our lives. And this brings up the bigger reason why I love Notion. Our lives are not linear, but so much of what we do in our work is very linear in nature, right? Think about Windows. I have folders and subfolders, right? It's linear. The Finder on the Mac, same idea, right? Completely linear. You look at your typical project management application. Uh, I'll pull ClickUp out for an example because it's one I'm very familiar with. You're going to have a space. Within the space, you're going to have folders and then lists and then tasks and then subtasks. It's still all very linear, right? But our brains don't work that way. Our brains work geometrically. Our brains are a neural network with things that can be linked anywhere from anywhere to anywhere into multiple places and from multiple places, right? That's how our brains really work. So there's an app I've used for years. I still use it called The Brain, which kind of mirrors this. I eventually went into Notion because the, the, the Brain, there's reasons. I don't want to get sidetracked with it. It's a really cool app, but there are reasons why it doesn't take. It's got like a cult following, but that's probably as far as it'll ever go. So with Notion, my first look at it, it looked very linear. I have pages and sub pages, right? But the more I dug in and the first look I had, I left it at that. And I was looking for an alternative to Evernote and didn't find one, at least not right away. I played with Microsoft OneNote. When I first discovered Microsoft OneNote many years ago, it was before Evernote. I loved it. And then I left OneNote for Evernote. After Evernote, tried to love OneNote again, couldn't bring myself to do it. There are things about it that I really like, but there were a lot of sort of deal breakers for me with it. I was stuck without a real good app for note taking and keeping that kind of information until I took another look at Notion a couple of years ago. And going back to getting things done and how I study books, I keep my notes in there. I can link to anything from anywhere. And then there was another experience I had. It was a guy who had seen I'd done some videos on Notion, and he has an app that they're, I think, thinking of as at least on some levels competing with Notion. Long story short, never took to the app because they built it almost exclusively for iPhone and iOS, and I'm Android and Google. So there's a lot of features that they hadn't made available for my platform. So I set them out. But I did read some of their documentation on how they recommend using their app that I've applied in Notion. And what this comes down to is a daily journal that is at the center of everything. And it solves a lot of problems, actually, and really fills in a lot of the gaps about getting things done. Going back to that book, what I can spit out in 30 seconds, as you'll hear in a minute, that I couldn't have if you had asked me about it years after I had originally read the book, was that the whole process is based on this as the foundation, that we have to capture, clarify, and organize everything we need to do, and then reflect and engage with the information. And of course, he breaks down all those terms in detail, explaining exactly what they mean and how it makes it so that you get the stuff out of your head and into a system you can trust. And our brains work very much automatically. If I do a proper job of putting these things in a system I can trust, my brain will not try and take over that job. It will rely on the fact that it's in a system I can trust. But when it's not in a system I can trust, 
my brain will assume the role of trying to become that system. It's too overwhelming. I can't process everything that I have to do. And brains are not accurate about it. I'll be standing at the supermarket and it will remind me about that thing I need to do for that client that I'm in no position to do right now because I'm not at my computer. And as far as that goes with a system I can trust, at least I've got a solid mobile app. So while I'm standing online at the grocery store, I can pull that up. And in this case now, I'll go right into my daily journal for today and I'll make that note there. It eliminates that decision of where am I going to put this instantly? I know where and I have very quick access to it before I lose the thought. So those are some of the core principles of my Bulletproof Notion project, which I'm hoping to roll out by the end of this year. Awesome. And then what does that look like in regards to listeners? Is it an educational course or what? Yeah, it's going to be a course with two verticals and a ton of templates. I've already got a bunch of the templates that I've rolled out in beta. So I have a bunch of people who I obviously gave them a deep discounted price on access to just the templates so they can play with them and also give me feedback and let me know what other templates they'd like to see, what improvements I could make and so on. So that's actually already out there. I'm going to do the course with two verticals. One is going to be done for you, meaning you duplicate my Notion template right into your own Notion account, and you've got all the templates. And there's like templates within templates. It's crazy. And then there's going to be a video that teaches you exactly how to use each template and how to tweak them and so on. The other vertical is going to be the DIY vertical, which is essentially going to teach you how to go from a blank page, which is where you're starting in Notion, and build the whole thing yourself. In my experience, most accounts don't want the DIY version. They really just want something they can use because they want to focus on doing the accounting work. And I totally understand that. It took me a while to understand that I'm the exception to the rule because I love to play with these things. I love to tinker. I love to see. Basically, I love to see if and how I can break something, right? And use it in ways that it wasn't intended to be used. And if I can do that, then I know I've really mastered it. And I understand this thing from the ground up, every nook and cranny of everything it can do. Mm -hmm. And So my expectation, my hope actually, is that most people will come in and take the DIY vertical of it. It's all going to be included. and But then along the way, they'll start to get curious and say, all right, but what if I was going to build this on my own? Great. There's a lesson over here that teaches you how to build the CRM template that I've got in there or how to build the simple task template or the detailed task template or the onboarding template. Whatever it is that they're learning in vertical one, which is the done for you. There's going to be like a corresponding lesson that will say, hey, if you want to see how to get from a blank page to this, go over here. And so this way, my hope is that over time, people will evolve with it and start to learn how to take what I've created and really make it their own and make it work for them. Awesome. Yeah. I know it's not out yet, but where should people go or how would they get a hold of you if they're interested in that? Just nerdenterprises.com. And the best way to stay informed is you you can't go far on my website without getting that pop-up that invites you to opt in. So just opt in on my list. I send a weekly email out. I promise you it's not a lot of marketing garbage. It's from the heart, written from me to you, what I experienced in my journey as an entrepreneur. And then I weave in the updates about things. That's the best way to stay informed. And then obviously I'll send an email out when the time is right to let people know, hey, we're ready. We're launching this. It's happening. Love it. Yeah. I When you mentioned your marketing email or your weekly email earlier, I was like, oh, wow, people are really enjoying this. I better get signed up for that. So I'm going to go make sure I do. Now, I like to always ask people, what's one book that after people are done listening to this podcast, or it could be a TEDx talk or something like that, but what's one thing that everyone needs to drop and make sure that they've read or listened to at some point soon? 
hard to ignore getting things done. And I know a lot yeah. of people have read it, but what I want to say in answering your question is read it again, but study it like I explained I'm doing. You should be able to spit back those terms that I did, which are straight out of his book. Because when you study something, that's how you're learning it. And so that would be my suggestion. I feel like I want to start a movement whereby I tell people, you've got to go back. This is the root of all productivity. And he's got mm -hmm. the system. And it doesn't matter what app you're using. He's written it in a way that you can use any app to apply. Heck, you could use pen and paper to apply his system. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, that's what I love about systems like that. It doesn't matter what software, what app, because it can get so confusing if you have to use a particular place, but you don't with that kind of thing. So. That leads me to the next topic. How did you get involved in this whole getting things done thing again and whatnot? Was it because you were having issues with productivity and efficiency and you were trying to find the end-all be-all solution, right? Just a lot of us are. So mm -hmm. tell us how that came about and what your recommendations are for others that are in that scenario. Yeah, I had a conversation with somebody a few years back and he had built up a multi-million dollar training franchise on the tax side of things, probably not unlike what you have, Jackie. In this conversation I had with him, we were talking about possibly collaborating and it, it didn't happen. But he said something to me that really stuck with me. He said, if I had tried to split myself between education and doing tax and accounting services, I could never have gotten here. The message being he had to get really focused on the one thing to build it and scale it and grow it. And like I said, we didn't end up collaborating, but that stuck with me. And that was when the seed was really planted. I need to get out of the accounting services side. At the same time, I always felt like I need to have some accounting clients. And I do. I've retained a few clients even now because I need something to keep me fresh and in the trenches and aware of what's going on, what the issues are. That's important to me. As I said earlier, I got obsessed with this idea because I was wondering, is there a holy grail? Is there one tool? I started to learn and actually in turn teach people, you have to figure out what works for you. I had somebody come to me and said, I don't want to use all these fancy tools. I want something simple. And I showed her Dynalist. I said, Dynalist is a simple. It's basically bullet points on steroids. Easy note-taking tool, but under the hood, it's got some pretty rich features. And it's really cool. I still use it sometimes if I just want to quickly sketch an outline, although Notion lets you do it just as well now with bullet points and things. Is there a holy grail? I would love to say my system in Notion could work for anyone. And I do believe that's probably true. But what I could never account for is everybody's brain works a little differently. So there's going to be people who look at my system in Notion and say, whoa, this is too much. I need something much simpler. And so I'll tell them to go to Dynalist. I'll tell you what really got me dialed in and focused. It was what I'm studying and getting things done. Another book I'm studying called Come Up for Air, a guy named Nick Sonnenberg wrote it. I do want to check out Chuck Bauer's book that you mentioned because you told me he takes getting things done to the next level. So I'm really curious about that. But I'll tell you what really got me dialed in and focused to the point where I felt like I was ready to actually put together a program. I don't feel comfortable trying to teach somebody something that I don't feel like I've mastered myself. What got me there has a lot to do with what I started doing when I turned 50 a couple of years ago, which was my workout routine. And I started to realize it's all about the routines in the getting things done context, it's that daily journal. That's a routine. I do it every day without fail, even if I just spend a couple of minutes writing something to get my mindset clear. It starts there and that becomes central to everything. With the workouts, it's the routine of doing it three to four times a week, very consistently. And so I found that routines work really well. And then most recently, and then I know we got to wrap up, what really helped with focus, because sometimes I blow the workout because I can't get up early because I have trouble sleeping at night. This has been one of my issues is my mind is so active. I can wake up at two o'clock in the morning and good luck getting back to sleep if I just happen to wake up. So the routine I've incorporated that has been like a miracle for me is that I've been meditating at night. 
in bed. Like I climb into bed and then I whip up calm.com, the app. There's a million of them. Some people like Headspace better, whatever. And I do at the very least a 10 minute meditation. The other night, something happened that upset me and I knew that was going to create problems. So I did a 25 minute deep sleep meditation. And you just do it literally laying. She tells you when she starts the narration, she says, lay down like you're going to go to sleep. And if you do fall asleep, so be it. And then she goes in and has you do a whole body scan. And you literally just scan your body mentally. And when she teaches you just non-judgmentally, if you notice a sensation, if you notice you have joint pain or something, don't judge it. Just observe that it's there. And it really helps you relax in, in a deep way. So uh, ever since doing that, this week in particular... I've been up the last three days in a row, four o'clock in the morning in my home gym by 530 working out. And I feel amazing when I start that way. That's so cool. Yeah. So that reminds me of a couple of things. I was trying to find the name, but I just ordered these like goggles that are supposed to help get you into better meditation mode. And I want to start doing nightly meditations as well. And then Gaia, G-A-I-A is the app that I was recommended with a Dr. Joe Dispenza, I believe. He does some pretty amazing meditations too. But guess what, Seth? Everybody asks these days in the last three months, goes to meditation as the solution to everything. There's something really big there. No matter what you believe as a higher power or anything like that, there's a subconscious level to us. There's definitely something more than just the crap that's running through our brains every day. And so you've got to get centered and you got to get focused. So that's awesome advice. I love that. Yeah. And going back to the recovery process we were talking about in the beginning, that's the 11th step is prayer and meditation. Meditation is a big part of the recovery process. It's something that I have to remind myself sometimes that we're supposed to do. The mistake a lot of us make is we use meditation as medication. In other words, we only use it in the moment when something comes up and we need it and then we stop. But it's about being in the routine of meditating on a regular basis that really cumulatively adds up to having what David Allen describes as a mind like water, where something can stimulate it. You drop a rock in, there's a ripple effect, but it's an exact proportion to the stimulus. Most of us, because we're so stressed out when there's a stimulus, especially a negative one, we have a disproportionate reaction to it. And sometimes the person on the other end will suffer the wrath of years of bad experiences in that one moment because they just happened to push the wrong button. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that could definitely happen. Okay, cool. This is a really interesting discussion. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? No, just I want to thank you, Jackie, for the opportunity. This has been a lot of fun. I'm excited for us to have you on our podcast next. For sure. And yeah, just if anybody wants to know more, I'm easy to find just nerdenterprises.com or nerdenterprises on any social network. And you can find me and reach out to me. And I'm an open book, as you've probably gathered. So I'm happy to talk about anything. Love it. All right. Thank you so much, Seth. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Concierge CPA hosted by Tax Plan IQ. We believe that every person has a unique message that can positively impact the world. If you are a successful accounting firm owner or influencer who would like to be on this program, please visit JackieMeyerCPA.com, J-A-C-K-I-E-M-E-Y-E-R-C-P-A.com to apply. Please share this on social media and rate us so we can continue our good work. Join our Facebook group called Accounting Firm Influencers or connect with me on most platforms under Jackie Meyer CPA. Thanks for being accountable to transforming our industry today. Thank you.